biggest stories in the news are all about the FBI, and certainly something weird is happening there. We'll talk about it, but first, I rediscovered a 1985 book called Amusing Ourselves to Death. I want to talk about that in relation to our phones on this week's Corey Truax Show. This is the best thing, the best thing that could be It was either C.S. Lewis or Charles Spurgeon. I can't remember which one said this. They said, visit many good books, but live in the scriptures. And certainly, I want to be someone, I hope we are all people, where living in the scriptures regularly is a discipline of ours, but it is also important to visit the many good books. And I try to make that a discipline as well. Now, granted, in my modern context, I don't read anymore. I have an app, a couple apps that read books to me. And then I use Blinkist, and there's a new app now I I used recently competing with Blinkist, and they read to you good 20 and 30 minute summaries of books. That's how I visit the other good books. I visited one recently that I think has some good some good thoughts for us today. You know, within that quote, visiting other good books, but living in the scriptures, a lot of those good books, I would say a majority of them, are ancient. Not not in this decade or the last. Now, granted, this book I'm talking about, it's uh, Amusing Ourselves to Death. It was published in 85. I hope we don't call that ancient because it's just a year older than than I am. But there's some seminal books throughout history that I think we need to, uh, let's go with engage with. And I think after we finish this first segment, you you won't have to go read it if you don't want to. I will have given you enough of the core elements and the message it has for today. We'll do that in just a minute. Welcome to the Corey Truax Show, wherever you find podcasts, and right here on his radio talk. You can reach the show on Facebook, Twitter, or Instagram. Look for my weird name, Corey Truax. You can also email the show at Corey Truax. Uh, what is it? Yeah, Corey Truax Show at gmail.com. Here's how it started for me. I just started thinking about how much time we spend on our phones. There was a conversation I had at work, and we all discussed about Sunday morning when Apple sends out your your report and how I my I always endeavor to have it below three hours. I didn't even know they measured how many times you picked the phone up. I didn't know that was a measurement. Someone told me, but Apple will tell you that. How many times did you pick the phone up today? And now I've decided I'm trying to decide what my goal is. I think I want to get it to under 100. I don't want to touch my phone more than 100 times a day. It's just a it's a principle of mine. I, I feel like we are allowing our devices to tell us what to do. It, it pings, and it makes noises, and it gives us alerts, and that determines what we think about, where our thoughts go, and I'm determined for that not to be the case. I do not want Apple to tell me what to do. I don't want Facebook or Google to do it. I don't want to be manipulated, and so anyway, that's how it started, and it led me down a, a rabbit hole of, of listening to that book, uh, Amusing Ourselves to Death. I thought about the phone this way. It has become the pinnacle of our triviality. Instead of being people that are thoughtful, we we want to be entertained. We, we want to be thoughtless. We don't really want to be left alone with our thoughts. It's kind of terrifying. What might we think about? What might challenge us? And I think we've been, as a people, trying to find escapes for a long time. TV was a great one. Some novels were great. Some plays are great. Sports are great. We try to find escapes. and now, None of those things are bad, by the way. 
but when used as an escape or just living a life of triviality, they become modes or methods of avoiding all the important things. And I think the, the pinnacle, the, we are now at the mountaintop, the mountaintop of our being a frivolous, trivial people who don't think about deep things. It's that little rectangle in our pockets. Just telling us it's okay. You could just, you can worry about who Kim Kardashian broke up with. Oh, let me tell you about this other gossip story that has to do with actual politics or something so you feel smarter for having cared about it. Hey, come look at these, uh, these dresses. Come look at these shoes. Hey, come, come watch this cook, cook, cooking show. There's endless distraction for our frivolousness and triviality. And so, just have a couple quick forward thoughts, and then I, I really want to get into how the, the book interacts with our phones. I took most of these forward thoughts from the book, by the way. What you're about to get from me is repackaged information from the book. So don't think it's original to me. I'm not that smart. C.S. Lewis said, some of the most dangerous ideas are the ones assumed. And what he was talking about was art. Art doesn't have to argue. If a painting wants to make a point about the patriarchy, if a song wants to make a point about the absurdity of the nuclear family, if a movie wants to make a point about how we've just taken sex too seriously and we should be more frivolous about it, they never have to actually say their point out loud. They can just assume it into their content. If you write a character that is rebellious and to, to his or her parents, and that rebellious character succeeds because of that, we have not made an argument that rebellion against your parents is good, but we've assumed it by writing the story. And art has the ability to smuggle those ideas in, the dangerous ideas, are the ones that don't get argued. They're the ones that get assumed. I don't know who said this. I think it was an ancient-ish musician who said, if, if I write the ball, I'm paraphrasing, if I get to write the ballads of the nation, I care not who writes the nation's laws. The idea, be, idea here being, the laws aren't going to determine what the people think and believe about ethics and culture and family what they think about religion, where they place science. No, no, the artist will. He who writes the ballads, and for us, he who writes the movies, he who writes the TV shows. If I control that, I don't care who writes the laws, because the people are controlled by the art. This is the one of the dangers of art. I, by the way, God, God made all art. I'm not calling it dangerous. I'm saying it used wrongly. The, the things that we use sometimes for frivolity, these are not bad things. But there is a, there's a danger to them all. The more time we give over to these arts and our entertainments, the more we become spectators of life instead of participants in it. The more you watch someone play sports or pursue a mate or the more you watch someone go on vacations, uh, whatever it is you're watching, the less that you're doing it. That was one of the main thoughts I had about our phones. They are the endless ability to observe other people doing things. The endless ability to observe others taking their kids to the park, working out, making a meal, going on a trip. 
instead of loving your spouse or going to the park to play with your kids or making a meal, going on a trip. We're not in living life. We're spectating. Now, what I just primarily gave you was from that book, The Amusing Ourselves to Death, a lot of those ideas. And I started to more closely think about them in, in context of the technology we have now and these phones. There was a, you know, I'll just, I'll read it to you. There was one really powerful portion of amusing, of amusing ourselves to death that I, oh, I wish I'd come up with it. It's so brilliant. He does this compare and contrast thing where there are two dystopian probably two primary dystopian novels of the 1900s. One is the one we all think of, George Orwell, 1984. And then the other is a little older than that, but Aldous Huxley wrote A Brave New World. And I think we too closely associate the two because they are ultimately dystopian. It's It's about what happens at the end. When things have gone all wrong, what does humanity look like? And he argues, the, the author, Neil, Neil Postman? Yeah, Neil Postman, I think, is the author. He argues so saliently that just because these two books are about dystopia and how humanity might ultimately end, they should not be in the same category because of how different they are. And finally, I just found the... I'm installing, by the way. I finally found the passage. Here we go. He's, he's saying here, Huxley was arguing for a very different end to humanity than... George Orwell in 1984. In 1984, Orwell was arguing something powerful will take us over. They, it'll be a government who puts cameras everywhere and invades your privacy and demands you say what they want you to say and, refu- and, and refuses to let you say what you want and d- demands of you to say what they want you to. Something powerful would come along and control us all. And Aldous Huxley argues, no power is coming to do that. We're just going to do it to ourselves. It won't be the things that we hate that will control us. It'll be the things that we love. Tyranny won't come down from the top. Tyranny will come from within. And here is that passage. What hor- what, this is directly from the book. What Orwell feared was that we would ban books. What Huxley feared was that there would no, be no reason to ban a book, for there would be no one who wanted to read one. Orwell feared those who would deprive us of information. Huxley feared those who would give us so much information that we would be reduced to passivity and egoism. Oh, isn't that brilliant? We know more than anything. We know more than ever, don't we? We know a bunch of trivial garbage, but we know more than ever. We know what's going on all around the world at any given point. Like right now, I could open a number of apps on my phone and just pick a spot on the map and I could see what people were talking about or what actual social media is being shared live from those locations. I can be in Paris in a moment on my screen. I know what's going around anytime I want. I can Google it, get on Wikipedia, We're so inundated with information that we're reduced to passivity and egoism and just not taking advantage of it at all. It's not that we're being deprived of information. It's that we have been given so much access, we've been been left passive. Continuing with the quote, 
Orwell feared that the truth would be concealed from us. Huxley feared the truth would be drowned out in a sea of irrelevance. <laughs> good gosh, that's good. Yeah, it's not like the truth is concealed. It's just in a cacophony of noise and it's impossible to find. Back to the quote, Orwell feared we would become a captive culture. Huxley feared we would become a trivial culture, preoccupied with some equivalent feeling, uh, uh, equivalent of, the, the, of the feelies. Such a great point. We, he thought we'd become captive to a powerful, powerful force outside of us. No, it's more likely that we'll just become trivial. Bond, in bondage to our feelings, chasing whatever we can to get whatever good feelings we want. Final part of the quote here. As Huxley remarked in A Brave New World, the, the civil libertarians and rationalists who are ever alert to oppose tyranny, they fail to take into account man's almost infinite appetite for distractions. In 1984, Huxley added, people are controlled by inflicting pain. In the brave new world, they're controlled by inflicting pleasure. Whoo. You know, that's a, there's, in, in a, one of the modern, well, let's call it cinematic, I think it was a series, TV series, one of the modern adaptations of A Brave New World, there actually is a series of, of orgies in it, so I couldn't watch it. But it was the, the idea here, it, it won't be by inflicting pain, we will make you do what, what we want. It will be by telling you, you need more pleasures. That's your purpose, go get pleasures. And in that way, be distracted from all the things that matter. Now the final sentence. In short, Orwell feared that what we hate will ruin us. Huxley feared that what we love will ruin us. And that's, that's as I went through this book and the, the summary thereof for amusing ourselves to death, I think just as much as you could identify where we are as a country. But then further, I put some more bones on that. That we are in the brave new world, and I think those phones in our pockets are a particularly powerful tool of that world. So when we come back, I have some thoughts on that, because I know I've even said already, it's not the TV that's the problem. It's not the phone, it's the problem. It's, but I've been rethinking that. Is it just the content, or is it the medium of the content itself? If you are skeptical that there might be something about the medium itself, come back. Let me make an argument for you. We'll do that when you come back for the rest of the Corey Truax Show, wherever you find podcasts, and right here on his radio talk. So we recognize first we're a decadent people, distracted by our trivialities, being controlled by them. That's the brave new world in which we find them, that it's not outside malignant forces that would cause us to be under bondage, but instead the bondage we feel to just feel good to our own pleasure. That is what's conquering us. I'm arguing to you next. I think our relationship to our devices is a main tool in what is controlling us. Let me make that case in just a moment. Welcome back to the Corey Truax Show. You can write to the show to tell me how right or wrong I am. You can do that at Show at gmail.com, Show at gmail.com. Let me do a shameless self-promotion as well. Uh, this uh, Recently, I got to play 
some praise and worship music. I guess as I'm saying this, I'm about to go play that music on Thursday night with uh, some great friends, Jessica and Taylor, and we're going to play for a pro-life and prayer event. Uh, that's a great opportunity I got. I just, I'm trying to point you to CoreyTruax.com. CoreyTruax.com. If you have an event where you think I should I should be featured, I, I should yell at some folks. I'm just kidding. I won't yell. You can put in a speaking request there. We'd love to start doing that a little bit more as well. And what else? Uh, Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. Of course, Facebook, Twitter, Instagram. Look for Corey Truax. You'll find me there. Here is two thoughts. One, I thought about the evolution of our relationship to the internet. And by our, I might mean my age group and older. Because I am I know a lot of you younger folks, you don't remember the world that didn't have an internet. And so you're, you came into it when we were already using it for lots of things. But if you remember the rollout of the internet, it was talked about as the information superhighway, where you don't need all those encyclopedias on your sh- on your shelf. I remember when I was a kid, there were traveling encyclopedia salesmen. I'm almost positive we had the entire encyclopedia set in our den. Can't hide money. Just kidding. We did not have any. But any of, in any event, we we could have everything in the encyclopedia. That was one of the one of the pitches. It's just right there on the internet. You can find anything you'd ever want to know. And in a lot of ways, that's how we used it. In the early days, we used it to get the movie times more uh, more, more efficiently. Instead of having to call the number and listen to Hawk and Tom in the morning, read them off for 30 minutes, trying to find the one movie you wanted to go to. We used it for research for school. It was a source to go get inform- information. I remember I used I used it primarily in the early days of the internet to track the NFL, NBA, and MLB standings, so I could know how many games back the the Bulls were of the Pacers in the playoff race, or I could see when the the Cowboys were playing the Cardinals. It was maybe sometimes trivial information, but we used it primarily to gather info. At some point, it became distraction. There was enough entertainment properties coming through the internet entertainment options, that instead of using our TVs or using something else to, to distract us, it was the internet now in our hand to distract us. And it's now taken one final step, I've noticed, and it's validation. P- people aren't using the internet anymore for information. They might not even be using it for distraction. They go to it to be validated so that the ones and the zeros and the pixels on the screen will tell them that they are whatever thing they're trying to feel about themselves. All right, that's, that was one thought, our ex- evolution of what we use the internet for. Now, how do I do this? Uh, here's probably the best way. So that's what we're using the internet for, but what are we using to access that internet that is now no longer about information but mostly about distraction and validation? We're mostly using our phones and our iPads. We're using screens to do it. And it made me rethink something that I would have said for decades. I have been saying for almost two decades, content is king. It's not the TV in your house that's the problem. It's not the phone in your hand. It's what's coming through it. Because the tool itself is neutral. A TV is neutral. A phone is neutral. An iPad's neutral. They're just devices. They don't actually mean anything. It's the content coming through them. And while I think that is the case, while I don't think I was wrong about that, 
I think there's more nuance to it. As I thought about it further, let me explain. When you're in a culture that is primarily of oral traditions, then the words you write and or speak are the most important. That's how you would gain notoriety or authority. Most of the Native American cultures on this continent were oral histories. They didn't write things down. And so who do you respect in a oral in an oral history culture? You love your old people. They know all the stories. And the ones that can tell the stories with the most pizzazz and the most interest, we're probably going to put them into places of honor. Let's listen to our old people tell our stories. That's the medium we have. That is what we can use to be entertained and know who we are in those mediums. I think back to the founding era, after the printing press, who rises to the top in first the Reformation and then the Revolution? It's those with incredible writing skills. When the medium was the book or the pamphlet, it was Luther who rises to the top. It was Thomas Paine, Thomas Jefferson. The medium itself said, you're going to have to have super tight arguments. You're going to probably need to do them succinctly. And you're going to need them to be accessible to the masses. You can't write over their heads. They're going to need to be understandable. And so if you're going to be popular and anyone's going to read you, you need to communicate in this way. So who does that lead a culture to respect? The medium itself leads a culture to respect those with great arguments who in their writing can call upon other works of antiquity and other works of history. The the quotes they can use, the events they know, that's what leads you to notoriety is higher intellect. So in, a, a written, in an oral culture, you might most respect your, your elders. In a written culture, you might most respect the quality of ideas. And then comes TV. I, I give the illustration of the founders at some level because if you look at the paintings, not a lot of them are great-looking people. We don't know their skill as politicians, but we know they were smart. And the mediums of the time allowed them to rise. Martin Luther, Zwingli, some of the reformers. These are not folks in a TV era that would probably do well. But it was their, it was the medium we were using at the time that allowed them, and the providence of God, to rise to the top. It's one of the biggest stories of history that when Richard Nixon ran for president in 60, I think 1960, he lost to JFK. That's when JFK became president. And it was the first televised debates. And in some of the greatest social science you'll ever have, those that didn't have TVs yet and who were listening to the debates by wide margins in the polling said Nixon won the debate on the merits, on style, he was the guy. But at even wider margins the people who watched it on TV, said it wasn't close. JFK mopped the floor with him, in part because Nixon was super sweaty, so there was something to mop up. And he looked a little disheveled, and JFK, as he always did, was just very svelte and right on, uh, looking right on point. The medium itself changed what quality of leader we were going to have. 
Because if you can look good on camera doing it, the quality of your points or the wisdom of history you have, it starts to matter less. And as that continues now beyond TV into social media, the mediums themselves are shaping who rises to the top. Twitter says, those of you who can punch, nice and short, 280 characters, just punch at your opponent and get out, make the short point, not deeply thoughtful. We're going to, the, the medium itself, the way it's built, rises those kinds of cantankerous and aggressive people to the top. Instagram will rise to the top. Our need for lust, skin showing. The mediums themselves are not neutral. I think I've thought that maybe until this week, where I would just say, a TV's neutral, the phone is neutral, an app is neutral, but if the infrastructure of the app rewards almost nakedness, Instagram, if the infrastructure of the app is rewarding being cantankerous, it's not neutral. In that textual world or in that verbal world, ideas were king. And now in this visual world, in this digital world, it's a whole kind of different people and they're not a desirable type of people that are rising to the top. In the book I mentioned in the first segment, Amusing Ourselves to to Death, he makes the point that TV taught us everything should be entertaining. Whereas that wasn't the case with like the, the written histories or the written stories or the oral histories. There were other things besides being entertained, but TV taught the brain that if I'm doing anything of leisure, it needs to entertain me. But you know, that's not true. Unentertaining things are not just worth doing, they're necessary. But it, was, it wasn't just the content of the TV that did that to us. It was the TV itself. Once we had them in our living rooms, we determined they were a method of distraction or entertainment. We demanded that distraction entertainment, and those with skills and abilities gave it to us. It wasn't a neutral device. It taught us. It changed us, really. And now social media and our phones are doing the same. The that written world, that written word world, and that spoken word world. It would it would reward quality over quantity. How good is your argument? How accurate is your history? Can I understand? Can we understand it? Is it is it universal? And really, we in those worlds because there wasn't a printing press for most of it. And there were only so many people that knew all the stories. Quantity wasn't rewarded. It was quality. And that is not how this world works. This powerful computer in our pockets, it is not giving you quality. It's just giving you a lot. Here's a TikTok video. You might like it. Oh, bing. Here's the tweet. Did you see this one? Did you see this one? Oh, one of your favorite celebrities just posted this on Instagram. Okay, Corey, did you see the score? Did you see this trade rumor that's happening? I'm at least assuming that's, by the way, people who have notifications on their phone that's what their phone is doing. I don't have notifications. I turn them all off. But there, maybe it's 
it's not just those frivolous things. Maybe it's, hey, you got this text message or this email, but your phone is constantly it's just giving you stuff. Here's a lot of stuff. Here's, be distracted. Here's a lot of stuff to do. And very little of, little of it is quality or meaningful. And so it's not just the content. It is the thing itself. I actually just went and gra- I just grabbed my phone. It was sitting on the table in front of me. And just looking at it, I, I'm having, over the years, just more and more a changed relationship to this thing. And I think that's where I want to close. I think we've probably all, all of us, guys, let me be honest for a second. I think we've probably all underestimated the how powerful this thing is in our lives. We just say, it's just a tool. Just like our TV. It's just a another medium. Yeah, I know. It is just another device, and all of our instincts say that all the devices are neutral. It's what you do with them that counts. But I am telling you that inside that device, and the device itself, and those that designed it, they designed it to distract you. To get you to value trivial things. To distract you from the stuff that matters. And very powerful people with brilliant software minds have purposed themselves towards changing your mind about things. About what matters. And I think that's how I'll I'll finish there. I don't want us to amuse ourselves to death. That author was worried about it in 1985 when we just had, what what was on in 1985? The, the Cosby Show? Happy Days, probably. He was worried about it when there was just a TV. And now, I mean, he, he couldn't imagine what we have now. What the internet provides, these streaming services, ser- services. Just asking you to be cognizant of it because we are, we got a lot of work to do. And a lot of forces that would distract us from it. And so I'm just calling you away from the thought, well, my phone, it's just a phone. It's not, there's a lot of powerful stuff happening there. And we should be really intentional about managing our relationship to the devices that run our lives. When we return, we'll start with what is happening at the FBI. We'll do that and a lot more when you return for the rest of the Corey Truax Show on his radio talk and wherever you find podcasts. I have made the distrust of our institutions a theme of this show the last couple years. I have made a theme of the reality that if we just are all losing faith in government, education, media, churches, we just don't believe in anything, that it's going to be basically impossible to be a cohesive people together. And yet another of our institutions is behaving in a way that's causing lack of trust, and I will admit I'm quite frustrated about it. Welcome back to the Corey Truax Show on his radio talk and wherever you listen to podcasts. We're in our final segment here. Glad to have you as we enter number... Uh, I always get confused with this. It's the eighth anniversary of the show last week, and so we're entering year nine, I think is how it works. Anyway, I'm glad you're here. I know most of you would be thinking, I am blown away by this execution of a warrant on the Trump property there in Florida in Mar-a-Lago. I'm going to come to that, but that's not actually how I started. It's oh, This is so funny to me. 
I put on my prep sheet to talk about this last, it's like five days ago from when I'm talking to you right now. So before the Mar-a-Lago thing happened, because I'll tell you what I saw. That's Yeah, that's the best way to do this. I saw someone share, for some reason, the FBI's most wanted list. And I don't know why I was curious about it, but I was like, all right, cool. I'll, I'll want to know who the most wanted list is. And I'll admit, I thought, man, there's probably some folks on here that I think, how could this be the top 10 most wanted? This is probably going to get political. They're going to call people who aren't that big of a, a threat a threat. So I start reading the list, and I, I'll give you just some examples. On our top 10 most wanted by the FBI right now, we have Donna Joan Br- something or other. I can't pronounce her name. She's a member of a communist organization that advocated for armed revolution and the violent overthrow of the U.S. government. Huh. We have Elizabeth Anna Duke. She's a former teacher and philanthropist who's also part of the same communist organization and part of the Black Liberation Army, whether underground, and took part in violent attacks decades ago. Huh. Okay. We have Sherry Dalton. He was a black nationalist, far-left radical, involved in a gang of a name I can't pronounce. She robbed a Brinks truck in 1981, killed two police guards, uh, two police officers and one guard, and she fled to Cuba. That's where she is now, where apparently she has a hip-hop career. Okay. We have Josephine Overacre, I think is how you probably would pronounce that. She was a white woman from Oregon who was part of Black Panthers, hijacked a Nope, wrong. That's that's Catherine Kirklow. She hijacked a plane and demanded $500,000 for the release of a communist militant. And then they flew to North Vietnam, where they are now. Then there was uh, Josephine Overacre, who was an eco-terrorist. She was charged in Oregon with involvement of 17 acts of terrorism, including arson and an attack on an energy facility. I could go on. But I just found something odd. In the top 10 most wanted list on the FBI, there's a lot of lefter, a lefties. A lot of left-wing radicals. Because up until the last year, political violence is that which marked the left. It was exclusive to the left almost throughout history. And that, that's obvious and normal. The even just the idea of conservative means to conserve. We want to keep the institutions. We don't want to burn stuff down. You slowly reform. It's the nature of leftism to be radical and demand a bunch of change. And so you act insanely or unethically or sinfully. And so I, I saw the top 10 list and all these left-wingers, and it just occurred to me, hasn't there been, in the last 10 years, the FBI issuing warning after warning that the great threat in the United States are white supremacist groups. It seems to me there's one white supremacist dude in the top 10. It's all, it's the nationalists, man, the conservatives. You got to be careful of them. They put out that, uh, someone leaked it recently. The FBI has a guide to show you what symbols mean someone could be radicalized. And it's symbols that I've owned. Like the don't tread on me flag, the Gadsden flag. That's for radicals. Like very soon, they're going to say the American flag means you could be a right-wing radical. This, there just seems to be an incongruity. The institution that I want to trust, I want to trust the FBI, I want to trust federal law enforcement, because I want to trust all the institutions. 
it's doing things to hurt his credibility. I found another odd juxtaposition in this. If you notice, generally, in our political makeup, when it comes to local police, local and state police, it tends to be folks left of center who are very skeptical of them and always assume they're, they're wrong. And it's folks on the right that put back the blue stickers on their car and talk about how awesome the police are. You know I fall largely in the middle of that because I don't think there's any... There's no such thing as the police are bad or the police are good or people who interact with the police are bad or good. Every single interaction must be evaluated one by one by one by one because that's how life works in, in any event. It's usually on the local level. It's the left who is skeptical of law enforcement and the right is supportive. You get to the federal level and it flips, man. <laughs> Especially lately. The, the left seem very happy with the state of the federal law enforcement, often because it seemed to be being used against conservatives. And conservatives right now, not a fan. Now, granted, they're not a, a lot of conservatives are not a fan because of the Trump thing. I care about that a lot less. But the, you can see just the incongruity. You're telling me your top 10 most wanted are left-wingers, but into microphones and your publications, you're saying the country's biggest threat is right-wing radicalism. And that comes along in the same year that we saw a warning from the FBI that maybe some of the more dangerous terrorists could be the parents at PTA meetings and school board meetings. There was, uh, eventually I did find, there actually is a law about how you can protest in front of federal officials' houses. The FBI had the jurisdiction and actually the responsibility to deal with the protesting in front of Supreme Court justices' houses. They just didn't do it. There was, about a month ago, we, we find great evidence. Uh, I say great, I don't mean good. I mean a lot. We find a lot of evidence that an abortion clinic in Washington, D.C. was not just doing abortions, but was committing infanticide. I mean, actually killing live children. under the D, That's under FBI jurisdiction. They've just done nothing. Again, I don't care about the Trump stuff much, but now that we have full details and you look back at the, the stuff with Russia, the, the Russiagate stuff, it was all fabricated and fake and largely laundered through the FBI. And then now we have this execution of a warrant on his estate that has got a lot of people up in arms because it's weird. It, it, it's weird, guys, come on, to, I hate the word raid, but to execute a warrant on a sitting president, uh, excuse me, a former president. It doesn't happen, really, in the Western world. Not just not in America. It doesn't happen. Not, it's not a France thing, a German thing. L- law enforcement don't get involved with political opponents. But you have to realize that's how that looks, too. The former president, as much as I don't want him to, has signaled running again. And so the sitting president, it's a sit- the sitting president's administration executed law enforcement action against the person who might be his biggest rival. Yeah, that's it's weird. It's it's a weird time to live. Now, here's here's what I hate. There are folks on the right saying this is the stuff of banana republics. This is the stuff that happens in places like Colombia and Uruguay and you know and uh, what the word I'm thinking of is corrupt Latin American states, corrupt states in Africa where you jail your political opponents and you investigate them and you use law enforcement against them. Right? Cool it. And then there were also folks saying this proves we're not a banana republic because 
in true republics, everyone is equal under the law, and not even sitting presidents should be exempt from following the law. By the way, I, I agree with that, but also you guys cool it. When it comes to this uh, execution, this warrant at Mar-a-Lago, right now I think there's exactly one opinion. Don't have one yet. If we get the warrant application and the warrant itself, and we find what's on there is frivolous and speculative, then yeah, this is Banana Republic stuff, and there should be consequences. Whoever at the FBI went through this, the judge that issued the warrant, there should be accountability all the way around because this is embarrassing for the country, and it's an abuse of power. A lot went wrong here. But if we get the application for a warrant and the warrant itself, and it's substantive, okay, then, yeah, everyone has to follow the law. And, of course, it seems it seems targeted, it seems political, but if a law is broken, I'm fairly universal on this, if you broke a law, you should pay the consequences. I mean, I'm, I'm, I'm the guy who's, who's, who, who says this every time. If you lit something on fire or broke a window or hurt anybody, and if you did property damage or personal damage, in the riots and protests of 2020 in that summer, you should go to jail or be prosecuted to the full extent of the law. If you broke into the Capitol on January 6th, you should be prosecuted to the fullest extent of the law. If you mishandled documents or whatever they're accusing him of, if he actually broke the law, then you should be prosecuted to the fullest extent of the law. The same way that Hillary Clinton should have been prosecuted to the fullest extent of the law for what she did with classified information. Uh, with the, what was that, 30 some odd thousand emails? Yeah, everybody. Everybody's under the law. So right now, though, I don't have enough information to tell you one way or the other about what happened at Mar-a-Lago, and guess what? You don't either. Now, by the time this episode comes out, we might have more information, but right now, I don't know. Now, so take out just the Trump part, and you can see, yeah, we got a problem. We, we need to be able to trust law enforcement. We need to be able to trust in a first-world country that our police at the local, state, and federal level are most interested in doing justice. And that's just not where I am with the FBI right now. I hate that. I, I, it's actually hard for me to say, and I'm an articulate, fairly articulate guy. I hate feeling that way. That doesn't, it makes me ashamed of, of the country where I am. That very powerful people with whom we invested power of the law and to enforce the law might use their power illegitimately. Yeah, I hate it. It's an institution we we, we need to be able to trust. All right, so I'm just going to put that in your ear. What is going on at the FBI? I wish I knew. Well, I got four stories in, what, eight minutes? Let's see what we can do. This is how I like to finish up now, which is clean up some things that I found interesting. So speaking of crime... I have at least some encouragement for you. Yes, we're in a we're in a crime spike. I've been talking about it on the show for a while. But it does seem like we are getting it's not as it's not as bad as I thought. It's fewer people committing crimes, but there's a revolving door of people who commit a crime, get arrested, get out and go do it again. So from the New York Post, this was published late July. Here's the stat. One in every five thieves busted busted for burglary? That is bad journalism and terrible writing. How about convicted or charged with? 
roughly one in every five thieves accused of burglary in New York got rearrested on a felony charge within 60 days of, of being put back out on the streets. So what we're finding is that we have a subgroup of people that do most of the crime. I think this I can't find the stat now here, but it seems like it's it's like less than 1% of the people are committing 50% of the crimes. That should this is where we get into some of that that Bible justice what what when uh, when the Lord had a had a people of, of his own and there and he had the laws, it wouldn't work that way. If you're someone who just continually commits crimes, you get a different kind of punishment. It's actually a very, very substantial and eternal one. And we have just an unjust system right now. So there's two things there. One is, be encouraged in one way. Hey, we're not actually... We don't have a ton of people falling into lawlessness. We have a subgroup that's super lawless and then a broken system that won't do what it's supposed to. Won't just enforce the laws and keep them off the streets. Two more for you, I think, and then we'll probably be out of time. I just think this video is great. I, I can't stand this bill that just passed. It's gonna, I, I talked about it last week, so I won't rehash. It's just a lot of spending and a lot of taxes. It was very dumb. And here we are, are in a recession, and some very smart person went back uh, in, uh, in the video archives to find all the times that the people who just passed this bill said it would be a very bad idea to raise taxes in a recession. And remember... We're in one. This starts with the former president, Barack Obama. Take a listen. The last thing you want to do is to raise taxes in the middle of uh, a recession. When the economy is in decline, you don't want to raise overall taxes. I, I don't think during a time of recession you mess with any of the taxes or increase any taxes. No one is going to want to raise taxes when we have a recession. In an economy like this, the last thing we should do is raise taxes on the middle class. You don't say. You don't say that's a terrible idea that everyone knew was a terrible idea up until this moment when I don't know for what reason these folks that, at least in theory, knew, yeah, it's a bad idea to raise taxes when the economy is weak or you're in a recession, decided not to. I'm still blown away by it, actually. I know I talked about it last week, but typically politicians of every side and all sort, they're just self-interested people. They do what they think will get them more power, notoriety, increase their election chances. There's nothing in the polling data. There's nothing to suggest. This is even helpful to them. I mean, that probably raised a little bit more money on it, I guess. But try to get somewhat excited. <laughs> try to get somewhat excited about solar panels. <laughs> you could get a more energy efficient appliance, and we'll give you. We'll give you a little bit of a tax break on it. Okay, well, uh, I can't afford groceries and gas right now. And if you want me to buy that $4,000 eco-friendly fridge and you're going to give me a 700 bucks on it, it's not exactly on my list. What a dumb thing to try to get people excited about. I mean, you talk about this bill having, if you, ha if you hadn't heard, over 80,000 new IRS agents. And somehow it's only going to be about the rich and the wealthy. There's fewer than a thousand billionaires in the country. There's a small group of Americans you can even call millionaires. It's it's well over a thousand, but you have eighty seven thousand agents you're hiring on to the IRS, and you're you're telling me you don't want to affect middle class people. 
Here's what I know happened with that. Leftism by nature is controlling. They're control freaks. And outside of the control system, the people through apps have built alternative systems. We now have alternative systems for banking. We don't need the banks that are all FDIC insured because of the apps we can use. We can pay each other through uh, PayPal and Venmo, the cash apps. We've come up with other investing apps like Robinhood and Stash. We are outside of their employment taxes and uh, payroll taxes, social security taxes, through folks who make most of their living or a lot of their living through Uber or by owning property in an Airbnb and putting that out there. What these folks are being hired on to do, in large part, is to go get into what's called the gig economy. That gig economy has been living on the internet through apps for about a decade now. And, oh, you know what? They're also after, I guarantee, they're after crypto. They're, they're going to come in and try to find the folks who are making decent money through Uber, Airbnb, crypto, and also try to get a little nosy for the folks who have enough dollars that change hands on the the cash apps like Venmo and PayPal. Pay, PayPal. You know, just send a little letter off and ask, hey, I noticed you had uh, this this much income coming in through your, your Venmo. Maybe we should sit down for an audit. Of course, that's what's going to happen with that force. And that's kind of my point here. Like, try, try to imagine that you, you think your big win is that you get to go sell to somebody. You see these appliances and solar panels and electric vehicles that you can't afford because you've been barely a- able to afford anything right now? Like our credit, your credit card debt is going up like crazy because you just can't pay, pay your normal bills. You, would you guys get really excited about buying solar panels, electric cars, and eco-friendly appliances with money you don't have? And also we're going to get the IRS to start looking into that side business you have? Don't you love our bill? How did they think this was a good idea? I'm always grateful when you listen. I'll be back with another new edition of the Corey Truax Show on his radio talk and wherever you find podcasts next week. Until then, everybody, peace and love.